Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program as uh, we get set to bring you New Paradigms for a New World. We have a returning guest uh, who uh, I, I'm very excited about having him back here on the program. Uh, his name is Alan Hunter, and um, you can go to his website, alanhunter.net. We've talked about him, talked about a lot of uh, what he's uh, all about. Uh, and uh, we're certainly glad that uh, you're with us again, Alan, to talk more uh, about uh, the work that you're doing. Well, I'm delighted to to be here again, Richard, and to talk with you is always exciting. Now you've uh, you've written a number of books. You actually uh, you've written about uh, uh, what 12, 12 books so far, and uh, you've done a whole lot of interviews and so forth. But you're uh, you're interested mostly in coaching. Am I correct? Well, that's what I'm doing mostly now, uh, is coaching people using writing. And so that also brings me to coach memoirists, um, which I've done very successfully now, probably for 35 years. So that's what I do. You know, it's very interesting in that regard, because one of the things that I find fascinating is uh, how young some people are when they write their memoirs. And I look at that (laughs) and I go... Uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not saying don't write it, but have you really lived enough of a life that you've got enough to put in there? What What should a memoir contain? I'm not talking now about number of years, but if, let's say, a 20-year-old was going to write their memoir, what should it contain? Well, that's a, a really good question because not many people know the answer, as it were, to this. So I'll start by I'll start by defining a memoir, and that is a memoir is a chunk of a life. It's not the whole life. It's not when I was born to yesterday. It's what the writer considers to be a, an important chunk of his or her life. And if the if the chunk really is important then you have to decide why it may have value. Now, some memoirs written by people who are in their 20s are uh, survivor memoirs, people who've survived abuse, alcoholism, drug addiction, and such things. So they would they would begin, as it were, in the action relatively early, say teens, and carry on to the mid-20s. That's a very, very fine way of doing a memoir. And the aim here is not to say, poor me, or look how the world treated me, or isn't it ghastly? The aim of a good memoir is to say, look what can be learned. I learned it this way. You don't have to go through my agonies in order to learn it the same way that it needs to be learned. Mm-hmm. So the, <clears throat> the quick answer to your question is, uh, is actually embodied in the question. What's the wisdom? Why do I need to know this? Why does this person need to tell me this? Some people, uh, some media stars, simply like to put the record straight. You know, this is what was said. Yeah. This is how it happened. It's not the way you read about it in the press. And some people simply like to drop a lot of names in the hope of selling a lot of copies. So, you know, yes, I met, you know, Elvis and Buzz Aldrin and, you know, all, well, great, if that's what you want to do. That's not really memoir, though, that's self-promotion. So we are, I think we're right to be able to look, as you are doing skeptically, and say, 
here is a person perhaps in his or her early 20s. What, what's the wisdom here? Why do I need to know this story? Yeah. And good memoirists already have asked that and said, what are the key points here? Mm-hmm. What is it that I can tell the world that the world needs to know? Even if it is something seemingly um, uh, rather ordinary, such as, you know, a loving parent, and there are many loving parents, a loving parent shaped my life. Mm. Aren't I lucky? Yeah. That's, that's a major message right there. Perhaps not as ordinary as it should be. I wish more loving parents were were figured front and center. Yeah. But that's what a memoir does. Watched a movie last night about a young girl, we're talking 15, mm-hmm. who uh, from Australia decided very early on, and we're talking maybe when she was in her single digits, maybe eight, nine, maybe 10, she wanted to be the youngest person to sail around the world. Ah. And she did it. But the movie, of course, was about the trials and tribulations, the challenges that she faced along the way, especially near the end of her sojourn. And I'm sitting here thinking, now, here's a 15-year-old who could write her memoir and at the end saying, more to come or something along those lines. But my goodness, that experience, and that was uh, like, uh, I think it was uh, a little over half a year, uh, 200 and some odd days that she was at sea. Uh, And um, quite a remarkable true story and everything. There's somebody who could actually, at least for that experience, write a memoir, if you will. Yes. Uh, I'm 62. My father's 92. I would put my father ahead of myself at this point in writing uh, writing a, a memoir. And because the man has lived almost a century, as my mother, 89, also uh, could do the same. I mean, they have seen and experienced an awful lot, especially my father being born uh, right prior to uh, the Depression and the Dust Bowl and all of those kinds of things. Uh, amazing, amazing stuff. When one wants to, and again, uh, I've heard it said that if you get the if you get the urge to write something, memoir or otherwise, you should do it. Uh, and and I understand that the first rule of writing is to write. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's it's uh, and it and a lot of people struggle with that. I'm I'm working on um, it's it is my first book. It's a short one. It's a small one, but uh, it is um, it's something that I have thought about. It's inspired by my my second wife, my present wife's uh, experience uh, with uh, um, a terminal. Well, not terminal. I shouldn't say that uh, a, a rare form of uh, a cancer uh, mm-hmm. that she had in 2001. Uh, she's free and clear of it today. But wow. it was what I thought of to try to help her as she went through chemo. So I'm, I'm working on that. Uh, is there a specific, and, and I know I'm getting into some very, uh, very specific aspects of this. Uh, and I do want to go there, uh, but I want to ask you about um, the, the, what should be included, how much should be included. And is it appropriate to include experiences that one has had, mm-hmm. i.e. the one writing the memoir, mm-hmm. 
about not just themselves, but about the people they had the experiences with. How far is 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 one to go in that regard? Mm. Well, there are two questions there. Uh, one is, uh, what do you include? And the other is, how deep do you go? So uh, that's going to vary with every writer. But I'll give you a kind of a blanket answer here. What should I include? What I do is I have many of my writers do a brief exercise. I say, um, okay, here is your memoir, here is your life, here is what, how you're going to present your material, you know it. Now I want you to write down, I say, um, maybe 10, 12, 15, if you've got them, uh, events that you think are important. What are the important events? And people will write down for instance, in the case of cancer, they might write down the day I got the diagnosis. Um, another important part would be uh, the reaction of the family, um, and so on. When people have got 12 or 15 of these uh, particular uh, items listed, I say, good, good. Now let's let's take that down to let's take that down to 10. Which ones could you miss out? Could you? could you avoid? And so people scratch their heads and hum and haw, and they get it down to 10. I say, wonderful. I say, now get it down to five. And that's when they go, oh, blah, 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 blah. So we'll try it anyway. And after a few minutes, they get it down to five. And I say, okay, good. What you've got here are the five must-have moments, the five must-have scenes, if you like. The rest you can perhaps add in or not add in, but this is going to be the core of your memoir. As we are talking here about dealing with cancer, mm -hmm. you may find there are five particularly vivid episodes. And I get people writing, choosing which one of those they want to start with first. Which one of these speaks to you? Don't worry about the chronology. Which one speaks loudest? Follow the energy, I say. Whichever one is tugging at you, saying, you know, you really need to write this one down. And this is the core, as it were, of writing the story. The story of one's time spent during those months and years, in the case of your, of your wife, uh, 22 years now, moving towards recovery. Once you've got the, the center of the story uh, perceived like that, it becomes a lot easier to ask questions like, well, how deep do I go? How much do I say? Uh, the short answer to that is that in when you're writing your draft, you can write whatever you like. You can go as deep as you like. You should go as deep as you like. Because what then happens, and this happens to all memoirists, is that as we begin to explore this particular event, and turn it over in our minds and check, did that really happen that way? What, what was going on? As we get deeper into it, we understand more. And so although we may change the names if we want to protect people we know and love, or perhaps know and don't love, we can change the names <laughs> if we like. But the point is, by the time we've reached that stage, we're in a place of really greater understanding and uh, compassion it's compassion we don't want to condemn people for the mistakes they made even if they were arrogant and nasty and unpleasant they were being 
unpleasant humans. There are lots of unpleasant humans around. I'm curious as to, to how much detail. Yeah. Um, certainly each individual, I heard this, this, this is a great quote that kind of ties in here. I heard this quote from a movie, uh, and it was actually from the protagonist yeah. who said, um, there is no reality. There is only perception or perspective, if you will. That's and exactly. so when one is writing a memoir, telling one's story, they can only speak from their personal experience. However, if they include other individuals um, in the story, what could, and probably has happened many, many times, is that those other individuals in that story may say, uh, no, that is not what happened. And from their perspective, that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. So, I know that some folks put into their pref the preface of their book or the foreword, whatever you want to, whatever you're going to use, uh, that you know these are my recollections. They may not be those of etc. Almost writing a disclaimer. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you know, I, as a matter of fact, I remember. Uh, 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 the story, for example, of this one rather famous uh, 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 blonde bombshell um, who was in a, a TV series. And, you know, she she was also infamous for being involved in a rather explicit tape with her her hubby or boyfriend at the time, I guess. And she's written her memoir and making I will say accusations. Uh, she's she's sharing a story about something that happened that was inappropriate. And the person involved is saying, uh, no, that never happened. Mm -hmm. It never happened, and so forth. And then you end up uh, in our society, very litigious, mm -hmm. winding up in court. And then you have to prove it. <laughs> and what, what about that aspect of writing one's memoirs? Or should one stick with only those events, those experiences, <laughs> That one that that individual was involved in, and not mention any other people. I've done that, for example, on this program where I will talk about um, certain experiences that I had during my first marriage, but I don't refer to oh, and this happened in my first marriage with my first wife, and so on and so on and so on. Um, I, I will speak from first person only. I don't include any other individuals, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. even though there were other individuals there, that kind of thing. Is, is there a, a danger in self-editing to the point where you've now almost changed the story? Now you're not even being honest with your memoir. Uh, uh, your point is very well taken. Um, people do edit their memoirs. People do self-justify. People do blame others in their memoirs. Uh, we've only to see, take a look at some of the memoirs that have come out, written by high-flying politicians, to realize that they're only too keen to justify everything, and sometimes on very thin grounds. Uh, but let's let's refer to your particular example. I think the whole business of perspective is exactly what memoir asks us to consider and that is we can only speak from our own perspective as writers 
what we saw and what we experienced. But at the same time, we're being asked to consider that other people may have reasons that we know nothing of and that we cannot condemn anyone unless, of course, we're uh, trying to be, uh, uh, shall I say, uh, very unfair. We cannot condemn anyone without saying, well, you know, this was my perspective. I don't know why the surgeon decided to do this. You know, maybe he was having an off day or something. <laughs> we all have off days. I don't know why the, uh, the doctor failed to diagnose this. Yeah. Is there a lawsuit there? Well, probably. But am I interested in a lawsuit at this point? Or am I interested in the healing nature of what is being written? And that's why... Uh, my my book on memoir writing called <laughs> Imaginative Enough, Enough, Write Your Memoir. Uh, but the subtitle is The Healing Power of Telling Your Story. When you tell your story, even if you only tell it to a few people, when you write your story, when you ask yourself continuously, you know, is this true? Is this Is this just? Is it going to make life any better if I say, my mother-in-law is a... Is it going to make life any better? Yeah. Uh, and if you feel you have to say that, then make sure that you take into account why you might feel you have to say that. You see, but I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. Well, honesty is a wonderful virtue, but yeah. there are times when honesty is also very destructive. You know, yeah. if... Uh, if the leaders of our countries around the world meet up together, they all shake each other's hand and say, oh, nice to see you. And they're probably all thinking, you know, you snake you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not the way you get stuff done. That's not the way to peace. Calling someone a snake is the way to war and conflict. The way to peace through memoir, through writing, through self-awareness, means taking account of these things and perhaps giving people more benefit of the doubt than they might be given in other places. Yeah. I know, too, that a lot of people journal. And I have journals going back to when I was 21. That's when I first started. Wow. I was given a... Now, I, I'll be honest with you, 62 years of age, no. Have I been journaling since I was 21? Not really. <laughs> Uh, but I did journal for maybe five, maybe 10 years or so. And I've actually pulled out some of those uh, books and I've kind of reread them. I'm going, really? Who is this guy? You know? Who is this guy? Yes. But there might be some, as you put it, gems of wisdom that would be very appropriate to incorporate into one's memoir. Yes. In my in my uh, book choices, that my for my second wife was very uh, instrumental in, and she was the inspiration for it. Um, I was writing it, I was putting it together, and I said, "I have another. Uh, I call it a document. It was actually the first document I ever started writing." Mm. Um, on um, on a computer, and I started it on one of these suitcase-type computers with no hard drive, two floppy drives. It was a uh, the text on the screen was green, okay, and it, of course it was uh, what they call DOS-based, uh, and um, 
you put the operating system in the A drive, and then you put your program in the B drive. And then once the program was loaded into memory, you could put another, pull that out and put your save disk. And uh, interestingly enough, the program, which is uh, was called First Choice. I thought that, uh, when I look back on that with uh, Tell Me Your Story, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices, I'm fascinating. But I knew I had that somewhere. And I had been, it was like a journal. It was like a journal. I say, you know, there's there might be some stuff in there I could have to uh, add to the book choices. And the way I delineate between the two is I put the material from choice from the uh, first choice document in italics, and then I'll make a notation maybe at the beginning of each chapter or maybe just at the beginning of the book. Uh, those uh, sections in italics go back uh, probably to the '90s, to the mid late '90s. 1990s, I should say. <laughs> um, how, how about that? If someone were to say, uh, is that a good method? Not to not to necessarily publish your journals by by any means, but to um, take excerpts, if you will, from your journals in, in that regard. Because hopefully, when you're journaling. You're you're thinking no one's going to ever read this, so I can say whatever I want. Now you might have to edit it, like you were just saying, you know, because you 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 know you catch more more flies with than with honey than vinegar or whatever the the, the saying is. And you don't want to start a war, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you feel like you know this might be a good thing for someone to learn. Um, are you familiar with with doing that kind of thing? Yes, indeed. Um, when I work with writers, I say to them, you know, your past journals will be very useful in the same way as a gold mine is useful. You will go down there and you will discover little gems that you can mine. But be very careful, I say, because there are two focuses here. There's the focus of you, the younger you, and what your preoccupations were. And there's your focus today. And so using a quotation helps to differentiate the two so that you know what you think today as you look back on that younger version of yourself, perhaps with a little skepticism, perhaps with astonishment, perhaps with a, who is this person who writes like this about these things that I've forgotten? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's not a bad technique. It is, however, something that's guaranteed to make your memoir quite long. And sometimes uh, that can be very exhausting. So I have to be careful with memoir writers that they don't exhaust themselves by going through, well, one dear lady had uh, nearly 40 years of, of uh, memoir books uh, stacked up in her one of her basement alcoves. And she found that it was acutely distressing and depressing to have to wade through them. Mm. I had to say to her, you know, please, I told you this in advance, but please stop going back through that stuff. You don't yeah. need to. You are now, you're not swimming in about in the muck, as it were. You're now on the shore looking at the muddy swirl that was behind you. You don't need to go back into it to remember it or to be able to convey what it was all about. And that's that's wisdom. Yeah. As we look back, we have the twin focus, where I am today, how it felt all those years ago. 
and how it felt then was probably poignant and heartbreaking and awful. And today we look back and say, it was just a heartbreak. It was one of many. It was a disaster, one of several. Did I learn from Did I grow from Is there any point in me writing about it if there's no growth available for the reader? So these are some of the things I ask people to consider. And usually this stops, stops them disappearing into a well of depression whereupon they stop writing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are talking with Alan Hunter. AlanHunter.net will be linked to his website so that you can find out more. We're talking about how you can write your memoir, the soul the, the sole work of telling your life story and uh, writing your memoir will, as uh, Alan has already shared with us, change the way you see your life. Uh, and uh, we hope that you will uh, go to his website. Uh, it'll guide you through the process and help you to discover the riches within you that uh, you've probably forgotten about, which we'll talk about as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and uh, we are talking with Alan Hunter. AlanHunter.net is the website. Write your memoir, The Soul Work of Telling Your Life Story. Um, when there is a crime committed, the investigators, they want to question the witnesses uh, and the people involved in that crime pretty much right away or as quickly as possible so that they can get the information from them uh, while it's still sort of fresh in their minds, fresh in, in their memories. Uh, and yet they'll also go back uh, a few days later, a few weeks later, hopefully hoping that the, maybe they will remember more that they didn't back then. Is, is, is time a, uh, a blessing or a curse of sorts in writing one's memoirs? Because... I suppose unless you've been telling the story over and over and over again over the years, um, if you tried to go back, like, for example, I could go back to uh, a vacation that uh, the family, uh, our family took when I was a kid to um, California. My parents rented an apartment right on the beach in mm -hmm. San Diego. And uh, we uh, the, I, I'm, I'm seeing now, of course, um, although I did take some pictures as well, I, I'm seeing my father with the hood up on the old LTD station wagon, which ha which was, you could call it a Woody because it had that uh, uh, side paneling, uh, which was an adhesive sticker. <laughs> it wasn't real wood. Uh, he had the hood up, but he was just, you know, making sure everything was okay. There was nothing wrong. Uh, that was where my dad was. My dad did not drive, but he was he was on top of the vehicle, whatever it was. Uh, I remember playing in the surf, uh, waking up in the morning and going out to the balcony and watching the waves roll in, walking along the beach, getting the sand between my toes. I think we drove up to Los Angeles to Disneyland. We also went down to SeaWorld and so on and so forth. Are those are the fresh memories more accurate than the older memories such as that? Or uh, what's what's what are your thoughts in that regard, uh, in terms of trying to 
incorporate, not necessarily, because again, you said you don't want to have this thing looking like war and peace uh, in terms of thickness, but in terms of the detail, in yes. terms of uh, storytelling. I mean, we've got songwriters who are known for their storytelling abilities. And I mean, the words they use and the descriptions, you can picture it all in your mind. So if you're going to have somebody read your memoir, you kind of want to take them there with yes. as much detail as possible. Talk to us a little yeah. bit about that. Yes, well, um, plenty of stuff for the memoirist to respond to here because memory is always fleeting and memory is always linked to emotion. You don't remember stuff that had no emotional impact. So the sense of peace and happiness that you felt on vacation, going to these places, that's an emotion. And you've remembered that when you perhaps haven't remembered what you had for lunch last Tuesday. So that because there may be no emotion attached to that. Right. So the whole conflict between um, uh, fresh memories and uh, memories returned to in a state of peace later is a very interesting one because it has to do with detail. Yes, a detective is looking for detail, saying who was where, when, what, why, etc. And that's wonderful. That's great for solving a crime. But the rest of us probably just need a few details in order to evoke a scene, to evoke what it felt like to be wherever it was that the character was. Now, memory does escape and memory people do play with their memories to some extent. And actually, at a certain point, we stop worrying about our memories, particularly. We let stuff go. So I'll give you an example of one of the memoirists I worked with. He was, um, when I met with him, he was in the secure wing of Cedar Junction Prison in Walpole in Massachusetts. Uh, and in fact, we had our first meeting in the former electric chair room. The uh, hookup for the electric chair was in just over to our right. He came in in manacles and foot irons, leg irons. And uh, he met with me and he said, well, I've sold my story to Paramount Pictures. And he had, um, because he'd escaped from prison. One of the only people ever to escape and be alive from that prison. He said, but I want to write the story to tell it the way it needs to be told, because I know that Hollywood will make a mess of it. Well, Hollywood has yet to finish exercising their options. He got paid, but the movie still isn't finished. And what we did was we took him through all of these events that he thought he needed, and I want to emphasize the word needed, to record. And there were lots of details, mm -hmm. there were lots of details, because his had been a very exciting and difficult life. Yes, you know, he did escape, and this is how he did it. He did stay out for four years, and this is how he did it. Wonderful. These are important factors. But what emerged in the time that we were working together, which ended up being several years, where I would visit the jail regularly, uh, what emerged was that he began to get a whole new perspective on everything he had said, just as presumably a detective will begin to find out what really happened behind the details. And he would then say to me, listen, you know, I've never told anybody this before. 
and he would tell me something and say, okay, that's really interesting. And then he would come back with, you know, this all seems like a long time ago. I'm a different person now. It's okay. And then a little later it was, I can't believe I did all these things. Who was that person who did those things? And I said, yeah, mm. now we're making progress. And what happened was this was part of a progress that helped to turn his life around. It helped to change who he was and how he saw the world. And although yeah. the prison authorities said, well, you're never getting out of here because you escaped once, ha! Uh, actually, he was paroled 10 years ago now, um, and he's been uh, leading a productive and honest and decent life ever since. He is a changed person. So what I would say is, writing your memoir in this rather dramatic instance really did help to change who he was and who he felt he could become. And that was a major, major opportunity for him, which he was able to take into the world and test in a real way. And, you know, every day he's being honest and decent and making sure he does the right thing. Well... Mm -hmm. I would say that those sorts of things are what can happen to every memoirist, because as you write and you assess who you were, as opposed to who you are, again, there's going to be this question of, so what does it all add up to? Initially, he thought he was going to make a gazillion dollars with the, the, the book and the movie together. Now he's very happy that he's changed his life, but he hasn't really made any money at all. Mm. I'm, I'm happy about that. Maybe one day someone will call me up and say, "Hey, have you got the, have you got the biography there?" And I'll say, "Yep, sitting on the shelf, all written." <laughs> uh, and maybe it'll it'll go out into the world. But that is much less important to either of us than the fact that he got to a place of peace, where he could become the person he needed to be. Now that's just one example. The details are there; they're fascinating. Another example I could give you is um, when my father knew that I was into the memoir business, I actually had to confront him. I had to say, you know, Dad, you're getting old. I said, um, you never talk about yourself. So I really don't know much about your life. I don't know who you are, Dad, I said. And he was a bit taken aback, of course, because he was my father. And I said, well, you know, let's focus on what happened to you during World War II. I said, oh, yes, yes, yes. He was a prisoner of war. Uh, he was in the camps for nearly four years. He suffered, and he was suffering from PTSD. And so, you know, I said, well, why don't you write something about that? Because I want to understand it. He said, oh, jolly good, jolly good. And a year later, he came back, and he said, there we are, I've written it. He said, but, you know, it's two pages long. <laughs> and I thought, okay, so I read it. I said, wonderful. Can you say a little bit more? Because, you know, here are things I don't understand. What what did it feel like to be in this aircraft which was being shot out of the sky? What did it, can, can you just say a little bit more? Well, we worked together for a long time. And when he died, he had, uh, by the time he died, he'd created three huge albums with postcards, memorabilia, the watercolors that he'd done when he was a POW, 
which recover for him forging the documents for the people who actually escaped. <laughs> the wooden horse escape was one of his. And he said to me, do something with them. And so I took the one that I thought was, to me, the most interesting, his um, wartime memoirs, and uh, they became the book, which is now under my name, although they're his, his memoirs, From Coastal Command to Captivity as its title. And what I discovered was that, yes, he had, he had actually falsified some of his memories because that's what he needed to believe. And I wasn't able to check that until, well, after he was dead. So uh, that was a little bit of a, an eye-opener. Yes, he uh, glossed over certain things because that was what he, he really didn't think anybody needed to know. And he didn't come out and condemn certain people who really should have con been condemned because there was no point now. There was no point in, in, point in, in, in trying to make someone else look bad when the whole situation had been bad. What does any of this matter? Well, it matters because here was a man who used to wake up in the middle of the night, according to my mother, shouting, don't shoot, because he'd mm. been caught down a tunnel. Here was a man who, again, according to my mother, uh, she'd wake up and he'd be, he'd be fast asleep. He'd be fighting with her, trying to strangle her. And by the time he'd finished writing his memoirs, that portion, he was in a much more peaceful place. The PTSD had begun to melt away. Had it gone completely? No, I don't think it had. But that was the healing journey that he needed to go on. He didn't need to specify how many, how many uh, times he'd been uh, thrown into the cooler for trying to escape. He didn't need to specify the uh, the terrible nature of the, of the type of aircraft he was told to go up in and try and sink battleships, which was impossible. He, he just said, this is what we did, and left the decision-making about this to the reader, which, of course, was where I had to write the fairly extensive notes saying, look, you know, dear reader, you need to know a few things here. Mm -hmm. The healing journey was the important thing. So I, I think that's where the detail comes in. Is the detail going to make it possible for you, the reader, to understand what's going on. That's what I asked him for. You know, I said, Dad, I don't understand when you talk about, you know, you all, you all got on a, uh, were put on a train and taken from Poland to just outside Berlin, and then they made you walk. I said, yeah, what, what was it like walking? Ooh, it, was, it was cold. Yeah, turns out it was the coldest winter for something like 40 years. And these guys were walking through it, and many of them froze to death. So you have to ask for the details in order to understand the picture. Mm. But you don't put in details just because you can put in details. Otherwise, nobody ever gets through the, <laughs> through the, the number of details <laughs> on the page. Alan Hunter is my guest. AlanHunter.net is the website. Write your memoir, the sole work of telling your life story. And... Um, I look at it uh, this way, that um, if one were to start out, let's just say, um, let's say in their 20s, uh, and they have plans. Again, we can no, nobody can predict how long they're going to live, uh, but they have plans to live a good, uh, um, I don't know, maybe till they're 80 or 90. I, I plan to live to be 100, you know, good. but then again, God may be laughing at that saying, uh, no. 
you're gonna this is how long you're gonna live uh and uh so you better get busy but let's say every 10 years uh they add to it so they they um they write an appendix, <laughs> a rather thick one, uh, but an appendix every 10 years, adding and adding and adding. Um, of course, by then, you know, you've got something that looks a little bit like war and peace. And so you've got to have it edited down. I'm curious as to your perceptions of your father before and after the process. Uh, it, it It sounds to me like you had you have a better understanding of your father with no judgment about his yes. embellishments or withholds. Yes. Because exactly. as you just stated, that's what they did. That's what he did. That's what they did. To survive yeah. during those times. Yes. Yes. And that's uh that was a great gift to me and to him. I mean it brought us closer. I never understood certain things until I saw the context for his behaviors, the behaviors that I encountered that used to be so annoying or infuriating or puzzling. And suddenly here was the information that was needed. So it brought us closer, brought us to a place of mutual understanding. And of course he was a huge figure in my childhood. And so for me, I was also able to see how I had learned certain mindsets of his that became mine. So he was, as a result of his experiences, he had, uh, let us say, I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the, the examples was he saved things because, you know, he'd spent four years in a prison camp where you saved everything. <laughs> You didn't have anything much. You had to save what you've got. And this used to mm -hmm. drive me a bit a bit bonkers. You know, why have you got all this stuff here? Just check it out. Stay, start again. And gradually, this became my mindset. And it wasn't until I looked at it and said, wait a second, that's what, that's what he does. I don't have to do it. I have my life to live. He's living his life. And so that was my healing part of it as well. And that's, I think, what applies to most people who read someone else's memoir. They recognize actions in it and they say, wow, that, that's just like me. Wow, is that really why I'm so anxious on Friday nights? <gasps> it's because Friday nights were always anxious for my parents. Oh, because. Oh, and suddenly we can forgive ourselves. We get people to forgive themselves. And if they're family members, it may help us to forgive ourselves for the foibles and traits that other people look at us somewhat askance and say, why do you always do that? So let's take it back to you. There is your father in that lovely memory you've just given. He doesn't drive, which is interesting, but he's lifting the, head, the, the, the hood of the, the lid of the car uh, to look at the engine and just check that it's okay. I'm thinking, wow. What an interesting and caring aspect. Another man might just have said, well, I, I don't know anything about it, you know, so what? If it breaks, someone will fix it. Someone else might have gone along and just kicked the tires and said, oh, yeah, car looks great. But we've got this caring detail of his. And you were a little lad. You know, guess yeah. who you learned how to be from? You learned yeah. how to be from him. 
And you know, it's, it's interesting too because my father, uh, and, and I love him dearly, uh, and I'm not about to say something disparaging about him. Don't get me wrong, folks. Uh, I would not do that to my father. Um, I don't know much about his his inner life, his spiritual life. I mean, I know that he was uh, um, Protestant, and when he married my mother, uh, he I don't know that he necessarily converted to Catholicism, but that's what he and my mother raised us as. But he's, you know, and we've had conversations. I, I've had some pretty neat conversations with both my mother and my father. Uh, we would, my wife, my present wife and I, we'd drive over there and we'd sit on a Sunday afternoon for a couple of hours just talking about many, many uh, more esoteric and spiritual and metaphysical things. Great conversations. And my father would chime in with, with his perspective and so forth. So I did learn a little, but I remember working uh, as I did, and I've shared this before for a Christian station, and they would talk about this personal relationship with God. Well, my father held his relationship close to his vest, okay? Because it was personal. Yes. It was nobody else. And I respect that. It's and, and I'm not sitting here going, gee, I wish I knew more. I don't know that I wish I knew more. What I know is that my father had the attitude that because he worked nine to five, uh, he'd get up very early in the morning. Mother would be making, my mom would be making breakfast for him, fixing his lunch. Then she'd, he and she and he would get in the car. She'd drive him to work that afternoon. She'd go pick him up, bring him home. And he feels as though, because uh, we've talked about this, that my mother was the sole contributor to our upbringing. And I'm working on a song to my father. Um, but I've actually said this to him in so many words. Dad, I wouldn't be half the man I am today if it weren't for you. Okay. You know, you, you, you have been, you have been more instrumental in the forming of my life than, than, than you're giving yourself credit for. And I do mean credit. He deserves that. He raised six kids, my Lord. Wow. Um, but that was a choice that he and my mother made. I, I, I've actually interviewed them on this program. It's not public yet, but they mm. even shared, no, we didn't sacrifice a thing because that's what we wanted. We wanted a big family. Wow. And everything that came along with it. <laughs> so yes. um, those are some precious memories for me. I think one of the most precious was one when I was back in Phoenix uh, for my sister's uh, memorial. My eldest sister passed away uh, last March, March of 2020, 2021. A correction, 2022, 2022. Anyway, uh, I flew back there mm -hmm. and... Um, we had been to the memorial and my brother and I had been in the car with my mother and aunt. And uh, when we, when we came home, drove home, my brother was not with us. He stayed at my sister's house and was going to come home later with my other sister. And my father comes up to the table where we're all having a nice little quiet, you know, a nice conversation. He says, where's your brother? Where's Mike? Well, my brother, Mike is the jokester in the family. Mm -hmm. Uh, always with flippant kinds of humor. That's just that's just my brother. So I figured, what the heck? Well, Dad, and of course, this was back when, you know, gas prices, they were going through the roof. And I said, Dad, I'm, I'm real sorry, but 
we had to sell Mike in order to put gas in the, in the car. Now you laugh. Oh, my father was not happy. And he basically said to me, look, when I ask a question, I want an answer. And so I apologized and I said, I'm sorry, Dad, I, I wasn't meaning to make light. And I told him what, what the deal was. About three hours later, as I'm making up the couch to go to bed, my father walks in the living room and he comes up to me and he says, I want to apologize for going off like that. And I turned around and I put my hands on his shoulders and I looked him square in the eyes and I said, Dad, you will always be my father and I love you very much. We are good. And that to me is a very precious memory. Yes. My father is 92 this year. My mother and he have been married for 66 years this year. Wow. Uh, they've lost their eldest daughter. And, you know, and, and I'm just, I, I look at them. Yes, it's precious that they've been my parents, but I look at them more as friends because of the relationship I've had. Uh, it seems to me like when someone writes their memoirs, especially if they come from a place of honor, shall we say, I'm going to throw loyalty in there, respecting the other people like my parents and my sisters and brother, uh, and appreciating the contributions that they've all made in, in my instance, to my life. It seems to me like the memoir is in a manner of speaking, going to write itself yeah, but it's going to come from a different place than someone who's saying, "I'm gonna, I'm going to write a a tell-all," you know, kind of thing. And the next thing you know, they're on Oprah or wherever, you know. Uh, do yeah. you, when you work with people who are writing their memoirs, memoirs, do you try to get them to maybe come from that place and space? Uh, yes. Do you, and and do you find it? challenging when especially when they start remembering certain things that elicit those emotions that of of trauma i mean we've all been through stuff in our lives talk to us a little bit about that process well the example you just gave us was uh, uh, my phrase is solid gold i mean that's a beautiful moment when you and your father uh talk straight and lovingly to each other and accept each other so you know, I would say if you were writing your memoir and you say you, you're going to, I would say that's a moment that has to be in there because it speaks a huge amount about where each of you have come from. He's not looking at you as his child. He's looking at you as an adult and you're looking at him as an adult equal rather than, you know, the, the pater familias or whatever. And mm -hmm. this is a wonderful thing that not everybody achieves. In fact, most people, it seems to me, don't achieve. So by, by including that episode, you are speaking huge amounts without having to do much more than describe the episode itself. You don't have to say exactly what it was that was uh, passing through your mind. You just have to present it to the reader. So this, I think, is, is it's the core, really, of memoir. What we discover is what the connection is between people, or the lack of connection, or the wish 
that we had for connection that never happened. And that can be as poignant as anything. Hmm. And that's a universal theme right there. Anybody, anybody reading what you wrote, what you just spoke, I mean, if you put it down on paper exactly the way you just spoke it, anybody would be moved by that. Anybody would be illuminated by the insights in that. It wouldn't just be an event. It would be something huge, especially as the background is, you know, your sister's death. Your father's getting older. Your sister has just died. You know, when none of us are guaranteed to be here for very long. Yeah. And maybe the question is, can we reach that place of understanding with those closest to us before the curtains are drawn? Shut. Can we do that? I think that's a life challenge. Yeah. So right there, you are putting down a whole philosophy of life in a, a paragraph yeah. of actual writing. Beautiful. Yeah, I know my father, he made that, you might say, uh, ultimate statement uh, as we're sitting there in the dining room uh, prior to the memorial. Uh, and he said, parents aren't supposed to bury their kids. Yeah, yeah, and there's no response. I, there was nothing I could say to that. All I could do is just take it in and understand that he's feeling it very deeply. And then I was also told a story, uh, continuing to allude uh, to my father's um, uh, connectedness to all of us and his compassion, his love, and so forth. My sister, my eldest sister, who passed, she and her husband renewed their vows literally days before her passing. And my father was at the service. He wasn't going to go, but finally he acquiesced and went. He has he has mobility issues. Uh, other other than that, he's he's healthy as a horse. Just can't run like one. And um, apparently, following the ceremony, uh, my sister was telling me that uh, he and uh, my sister went off to the side, but still visible to everyone. And apparently, she says, "Oh yeah, they hugged." They just held each other just for the longest time. Mm. Uh, I think because my parents knew, but none of us siblings at the time, or at least I didn't know, uh, how short her time was. Wow. Um, but apparently he, they, they just held on to each other for the longest time. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, the families that were born into, Alan, because we're never guaranteed uh, a rock, a, a Norman Rockwell kind of kind of life, you know. But we also, um, through I think someone else's memoir, can learn, as you've talked about before, the wisdom that can be shared in these in these memoirs. We can learn how to um, transition into an appreciation in spite of the challenges that we may have faced with that individual. Um, my parents said to me in my 20s, gee, Richard, I wish we could have protected you more when you were going to school because I was bullied by, by kids. And I thought, and that's an interesting phrase that they would say, but I mean, what are you going to do? You can't follow me around in school. A, because you don't have the time. B, because it would only make things worse, you know, kind of thing, yes. you know. Um, but it's just amazing some of the some of those things that that have uh, 
that have transpired over the years for us. And uh, I know that each one of us siblings, the five that are left, we all have uh, different impressions of our parents as well as of each other. Exactly. And my brother and I had a, a very heated conversation. He is on on a di- on the different end of the of the political spectrum than I, let alone other areas. And I made it my, made it a point. I said I am not going to let this conversation degrade. This is my brother, mm-hmm. and whether I agree or disagree, he's always going to be. Just like I said with my father, he's always going to be my brother. And we did come to a consensus that we agreed on three things that needed to be fixed. Didn't necessarily agree on how, but we did agree. (laughs) (laughs) on. uh, And it's like, okay. And I loved it. I loved the other part where my mother, it was was late at night, early in the morning, um, prior to my sister's memorial. My mother pops out of the bedroom and says, boys, I'm 62. He's 59, 60. (laughs) Boys. It's 1 a.m. Oh, okay, mom, we're just about finished it. <laughs> but, you know, um, so I think that when someone sits down to write their memoir, they have no idea. Just like with this program, we have no idea where this program's going. I, I Honestly, I don't. I mean, I've got information that you've sent me, maybe bullet points and so forth, talking about uh, writing, uh, write your memoir, this, the sole work of uh, telling your life story. Um, but as I've said many times, the universe asks the questions. I'm just along for the ride. We're talking with Alan Hunter, alanhunter.net. And that's the title of the book is Write Your Memoir. And you're listening to Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan. And I thank you so much for uh, joining us here on the program. Alan Hunter's my guest. And uh, Alan, as we uh, fast approach uh, our time together here on the program, I am. Uh, I'm curious as to. Uh, um, you have siblings. Yes, I do. I have uh, an older brother. So, what's your? Uh, has he written his memoir? No, no. He uh, does. He have any interest in? Not really. No. <laughs> do you feel that if he, let's say, in your instance, mm-hmm. that if he doesn't, mm-hmm. that it's not just a loss to society in terms of his life's lessons and the wisdom there, but it's a loss to you because you don't really get to know your brother or, uh, you know, because I, you know, I love my brother, but you know, and I'm happy for his life and he's, he's already retired. He retired in his uh, around during COVID well, well, and, yeah. and I'm just sitting here going, okay. And he's traveling. He, a matter of fact, last I heard, he was in Asia, uh, in oh, nice. uh, in Southeast yeah. Asia, traveling and so forth, which is great. I I don't envy him. I I, I congratulate him, but I don't know him other than that conversation that he and I had. What about yeah. you and your brother? Yeah, very good question, and I don't mind uh, answering it. Um, I think. I know that my brother would be well served if he were to try to write some sort of memoir. Um, and the gentleman I'm working with at the moment uh, is a bit like my brother, and he is doing excellent work um, by putting together pictures and then adding captions to them, so the photographs that he's taken throughout his life. But to return to my brother, uh, it would enable me to uh, get closer to my brother it would enable his children to get close to him, mm. which 
as of present moment speaking, uh, they are not, because he's a very, who can be a very closed person. He doesn't speak about himself very much. And he now has grandchildren who will presumably one day want to uh, sit on his knee and ask questions about his life. And uh, he's had a very varied and very interesting life traveling the world as an engineer. And by keeping his thoughts so close to his chest, which he feels is necessary, he's stopping people from knowing him terribly well, uh, even his ex-wife. I think that's a great pity. I think that that means that if we don't know him well, then who does? I don't know that he has a vast array of friends with whom he is able to, to speak openly about things or matters of the heart. He can speak about many things that have to do with his job, which he loves, and uh, engineering and so on. But matters of the heart? I, I, I don't know. I've tried. Mm. Uh, I've tried in conversation to sort of nudge and pry and ask. Not happening. So I have a sense as to why he wants to keep that lot quiet. And the sense is that Actually, neither at home nor at school uh, was it safe for him to disclose himself. Um, not because there was any great secret, but just because perhaps like you, he was bullied. Uh, I know there was bullying going on in his school. Uh, and so he shut down. I think that's a terrible pity. I would like to see the opposite happen. Hmm. Do I expect it to happen? No. Does he listen to me when I suggest, make the suggestion? No. <laughs> He's quite happy closing a few doors very firmly behind him. And that is his privilege. He is a free human being. He has the right not to look at anything that I think might be important. Uh, that's, that's entirely up to him. I must respect that. So, yes, you know, not everybody is going to to write a memoir, maybe some people are just going to tell a few anecdotes about um, what it was like to be in the wilds of uh, whichever awful country he was sent to in order to be an engineer. Um, I'm sure that's very entertaining. Will it give me much insight into the uh, what William Faulkner called the secrets of the human heart? Uh, probably not. Hmm. But hey, he's my brother. Yeah. These programs, I've often sort of jokingly said that if somebody wanted to write my um, unauthorized uh, biography, uh, all they have to do is listen to these interviews because I've shared so much about myself and my life in these programs because uh, I've learned that what makes us the same is the fact that we all experience the same emotions, different intensities, but the same emotions. What makes us unique, different, and special is the stories behind those emotions. And that's where the memoirs come in. And that's, I think, what you're talking about. That is it. That is it. Is that connection. Yeah. yeah. Alan Hunter, my guest here on Tell Me Your Story.
I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you so much for being with us here today as we talk once again with Alan Hunter, alanhunter.net. Write your memoir, The Soul Work of Telling Your Life Story is the conversation piece for today. Uh, he's written a number of other books that uh, certainly uh, we could talk about down the road, and uh, we may very well do that, Alan, because <laughs> it's something that... Uh, uh, that is uh, of of I think grave importance uh, uh, in that regard, because uh, uh, we 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 need to you know I I I was introduced for example to uh, uh, to um, oh what was it uh, uh, mythology I was introduced wow. to mythology years ago uh, a dear friend of mine he's a dear friend now I didn't know him back then in 2012 2013. Uh, but he has his PhD in mythology, uh, which is really very cool. And um, we did these series of programs called Mythosophia, exploring the depths of myth and wisdom. Fabulous. Yeah. Oh, it was it was incredible. And, and he would surprise me on a couple of programs because I used to talk about how a good friend of mine who I also connected with, who has been on this program, he and I, this other gentleman and I used to work together uh, talking uh, about Star Trek, the next generation. That was the era in which we were working together at the Christian station. And he said to me one day, he said, you know, that that Star Trek next generation, that's our modern day mythology. And I started watching it from that perspective. It was, it was, it was great. It was great. Um, but uh, we, we learned, I learned so much. It's like, I should have my PhD. But the reason I bring it up is because <laughs> You have a book about the six archetypes of love. Yes, uh, I do. That's that's one of the books. Uh, uh, most of us are confused by love. Um, I I certainly am because <laughs> I sometimes question: Do I do, do do I really love this person? Uh, you know, I mean, do I? I mean, am I supposed to? Is there some supposed to be a certain feeling inside that I'm supposed to have, mm-hmm. or is love expressed more more exclusively mm-hmm. through action? And the things that I do uh, mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Well, uh, who are you when you're in love? Which archetypes will you choose to live? And uh, these six archetypes are the developmental um, uh, milestones described here, obviously, also in uh, stories that we need to know. And it explains in terms of what it is we need to know about loving others, knowing about them can lead us uh, to find the core of a love that is constantly uh, maturing and growing. And it seems to me that would also help us, uh, uh, Alan, to learn how to love ourselves. I've often, I've said to people when they're grumpy and they're angry and they're, and they start, and I use uh, this, I, I don't like the word on the one hand, but it's like, it's the only word that really fits they're very, very self-deprecating. And I would say, would you talk to your best friend that way? They would say, no. I said, then why are you talking to yourself that way? Exactly. You deserve the same kindness your friend does. So that would be an interesting study as well. Prince, frogs, and the ugly sisters, the Grimm's brothers, healing tales that yes. we should uh, we should look at as well because we can use all the healing we can get yeah the path of uh, synchronicity also yes. another wonderful conversation that we can have 
in that regard and spiritual hunger. Uh, Would you say in our day and age right now mm-hmm. that in spite of the fact that many people in surveys will say, no, I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, mm-hmm. that those are just words that they don't fully understand what it means to be spiritual. I would agree with you entirely, which is, of course, why I wrote the book. I suggest that we are hungry for spiritual nourishment. But like people who need good food, we all we can find is junk food. Uh, we have to look hard for good food. Otherwise, we're going to spend our whole lives swigging fizzy drinks and uh, eating things that are bad for us. And that's because we have a modern mythology that is centered around consumerism. Mm-hmm. So when we have a spiritual hunger, many of us seek to solace ourselves by turning it into uh, a physical um, search for satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And so we accumulate large quantities of uh, shiny toys, and very lovely they are. Hey, nothing against shiny toys. I like them too. Mm-hmm. But to pretend that they're going to fill our souls is actually not the case. They will have us being hungry, as it were, for the next piece of junk food. We'll be hungry for the next bit of bling, for the next thing that that fashion throws our way. So I see our society, specifically here in the West, because ours is such an open society, and a society where many folkways have been blended together and perhaps lost, I see us as a society that is suffering from spiritual malnutrition. Other countries, some of them are suffering the same way, and some of them have very active spiritual traditions that everybody, especially in the more remote regions, uh, tends to buy into. They know how to feed themselves spiritually with a belief system that is coherent, perhaps strange to us, and which gives them an inner awareness of who they are and what they are supposed to be doing on this earth yeah and surprisingly not surprisingly i should say the the sort of universal underpilling underpinnings of this are almost always the same as the great religions so <laughs> be kind to others do as you would be do done to you know honor your elders your all of these things and yet we don't do that here in the west do we do to others as we would like to be done to well not really everybody says hey it's the art of the deal it's the art of of winning it's the art of getting ahead it's the art of making the other person look stupid or a monkey or or basically ripping them off oh that's a great spiritual practice isn't it i don't (laughs) think so i don't think so So you have two books you have two books that actually kind of go together from my perspective. Uh-huh. Gratitude and Beyond yeah. and the Sanity Manual. Yes. <laughs> and I honestly do believe uh, that we could codify the Sanity Manual down uh, to basically if you would just show gratitude yes. for especially for the little things, yes. the small things in your life. I woke up this morning. Mm-hmm. I um, 
Uh, I fed the cats and the dog and I, I let the chickens out and gave them food. I'm grateful for their presence in my life. I okay. told my wife that I love her and I gave her a kiss goodbye and said, I'll talk to you later. And the, the opportunity to be able to do that again uh, this yeah. morning uh, to drive. Yes. I mean, I, I, I didn't start driving until I was 38. I'm 62. Wow. So, wow. so it kind of goes to show you that I haven't even, I have not even been driving half my life yet. Wow. And yet my peers probably 15, 16, if not earlier, they've been driving a lot longer than I have. <laughs> uh, but I, I have a greater appreciation for that ability because I didn't have it early on yes. and um, so forth. But gratitude just seems to me um, to be so, so missing in a lot of people's lives. Uh, uh, you know, it's key. It's and they have a hard, some people have a hard time with it, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I and I think know. that the victimhood yeah. has a lot to do with it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah. You can't you can't play the victim card and be simultaneously grateful. It's only when you realize, oh, um, I've been through some tough stuff, mm, but I'm still here. Mm, that the gratitude comes into into consideration. But mm. the victim card is all about be nice to me because I deserve it. Yeah. See me, pity me. And yeah. that's not gratitude at all. I have a hard time. Yeah. I have a hard time with that from the standpoint, not of being grateful uh, and certainly not being in that victim. I can't stand being in the victim mode. And I'll yeah. put it to you this way. Uh, I have an occasional beer. I like certain uh, uh, mixed drinks, that kind of thing, but I am not a heavy drinker now, because it's not good for you uh, and not for any other reason that I don't like not being in control. What happens if there's a sudden emergency and I'm wasted? Well, how am I going to help yeah. in the situation uh, yeah. and so forth? So I just, I just don't. And um, it's the same thing with victimhood. Yes. I'm out of, I, I'm out of control. Mm -hmm. I'm a victim. I'm a puppet on a string being mm -hmm. manipulated by forces. I either understand or don't understand either way. And I, I have, uh, so I'm not responsible. But the thing is, is that, like with you, the work you do, I'm sure you take uh, a certain amount of appropriate pride in the work that you do, the things that you accomplish. Uh, I'm good at what I do. I love what I do. It's a lot of fun. I take pride in it also, in an appropriate uh, appropriate kind right. of pride. Right, right, too, yeah. You know, so... Um, if I get into the victimhood, I can't, I, I'm no longer responsible. I am no longer, I can't take that same appropriate pride in what I do because I didn't do it. It's like when I was at that Christian station, if something bad happens in your life, that was the devil. Ugh. Well, then that means that if something good happens in your life, it wasn't you, it was God. It was well, God. then what are you? You're a puppet on a string. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where's the fun in that? <laughs> You uh, you also have life passages, and then yes. of course you also mentioned uh, the book that uh, the memoir that you you put together for your father, from, from coastal command to captivity, the memoir of a Second World War uh, airman, and uh, that's just a few of the the the, the writings that uh, folks you can find out about. Oh, also Joseph Conrad, 
uh, and the ethics of Darwinism. That would be a fun one. Uh, and then <laughs> how they met. Uh, it's a novel that you've written, and and we'll we'll get into some of these others because we will have you back because you've got so much. Um, well, Delighted to come back. Yes, I, I would love to have you back to talk Thank more you. about this here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and we're here with Alan. AlanHunter.net. Alan Hunter is my guest, written 12 books, working probably on his 13th, 14th, and 15th, maybe even at the same time for all we know. Uh, just don't get them mixed up because one's nuclear <laughs> physics, the other's brain surgery, and so forth. Uh, it's been a pleasure, it's as been a always, great pleasure. to have you on the program, and we, we will have you back. We'll set up another time uh, oh, to yeah. converse more about uh, this, this wonderful world in which we live, that we've been gifted if you will, maybe that we've created. Uh, and um, I would love to continue doing that with you. I would be so delighted to continue the, this conversation because we go into very interesting places. And uh, as you said, you never know where, where it's going to lead. It's great. And the universe is in control, I tell you what. Now, that's not saying I'm not responsible. I am. I don't have to ask those questions. But if I don't, I get pounded inside the head saying, ask the question, ask the question, ask the question. Yeah. Uh, and so I do. Uh, and it does take us into some wonderful places. We are uh, uh, going to wrap things up here. But before we do, uh, as always, I've got those three questions I love to ask my guests. Sometimes the questions uh, elicit different answers each time. But before I ask you those questions, I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story. New paradigms for a new world. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices. To help make your dreams come true, we're here on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m. And then we're here for a special edition of Tell Me Your Story on Wednesdays at 9 a.m. And uh, we are also podcasting on SoundCloud and iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Radio, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and all the other wonderful places across the internet. And we have a YouTube channel where you can watch these interviews. I hope that you will and subscribe. I'm excited about when the numbers rise, but the numbers aren't why I do this program. I'm at 103 subscribers on YouTube. It's kind of cool. Uh, but there are a lot more people that are watching the uh, watching the interviews. And thank you so much for doing so. And for those of you who repost, I'm I'm really appreciative of that. Also, if you'd like to support the work we're doing, we're greatly appreciative of that. I am I, That is where uh, my gratitude goes uh, in abundance uh, to those folks who support us, who have supported us and who will support us. And I say thank you, thank you, thank you. We also ask that you uh, spend some time going within, listening to that still small voice and spending time in that quiet, peaceful, calm uh, place and uh, getting the inspiration, the insight, the education, the information, whatever it is that you need. It's there for you. That's right. It's there for you. With that, we start with the three questions that we've been asking here in our 15th year. The first being, who is Alan Hunter? Alan Hunter is a person who is passionately interested in the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and in asking where they came from and are they actually accurate? Mm. And in that, all sorts of things emerge. What is your life's purpose? Oh, my life's purpose, I believe, is to help people explore these radical questions uh, so that they can move well to a place of better understanding and perhaps it's best summed up in the words you used, a place of gratitude, because I think gratitude allows for understanding in, in a way that nothing else can. 
And finally, this is the new question for the 15th year. What was your best day? Ah, well, I remember how I answered last time, and it's still the same. My best day is today. I mean, how wonderful. I'm here. I'm talking about what I care deeply, deepest about. I'm talking with you who understands exactly what's going on. And gosh, you know, I'm I'm able to do this in the hope that other people may perhaps benefit a little Wow, what a privilege that is! That that I, today was today's a really good day. <laughs> and, the and the beautiful thing is, Alan, it's not over yet. It's not over. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, uh, Alan Hunter, thank you again for joining us here on the program, and we are going to have you back again uh, you. In, in about a month or so to 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 talk uh, in depth about one of your other uh, books. Uh, we'll probably maybe focus on that whole uh, spiritual hunger aspect because I think yes. that I think it's timely. I think that people need to hear that. So we look forward to having you back. I I very much look forward to continuing our, our wonderful free ranging conversations. Thank you, Richard. This is you are very welcome, and thank you for listening to and watching. Tell me your story, new paradigms for a new world, where we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, video cast, love to lull, and Jeanette, I am still listening.